everybody. This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to episode 59 before you're now going to listen to episode 60. This is part two of our time with Pam Ruig and Aaron Royster, and we're talking about treating non-severe clinical mastitis. We'll jump right into where we left off last time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here today. Enjoy the episode. We kind of, I think, laid the groundwork here, but we really need to get into the specifics of pathogen-based treatment. You know, if once we culture and we know what we have, now what? You know, we kind of said that there's there's not all that many cows that we know absolutely benefit from antibiotics. And then there's even fewer because there's some that aren't eligible. Let's let's walk through, okay, I've cultured and I've gotten a result. Okay, what when do I treat and when when do I not treat, which is probably, you know, just as important. Okay, I'm gonna work through it from simplest decision to hardest decision. How about that? So if you get a, if you have a non-severe case of clinical mastitis that you get a nice sample from, milk sample from, and you culture it, you've got no growth, you should like crack out the champagne because the prognosis for the, for about 85% of those cases is really, really good. Most of those cases are culture negative because they've achieved spontaneous bacteriological clearance before you've seen the inflammation. And so in those instances, no antimicrobial is often a really good decision. Those animals have faster return to milk. They have faster return to normal somatic cell count and they have really low rates of recurrence. That's an easy, easy one. And that should be, depending on herd characteristics, somewhere between 25 to about 45% of your cultures. You agree with that, Erin, about that proportion? Especially with your first statement, if they can collect a really good clean milk. <laughs> yeah. right, that was yeah. the story if I was about to say. If they're collecting good so. clean milk samples, yes, 25 to 40. If yeah. eh, 10 to 40. Yeah, exactly. Collecting clean milk samples is a whole nother podcast. Uh, yeah, that's a, exactly, <laughs> Emily. Exactly. So the second easiest decision would be a gram negative. So if you've got gram-negative growth in a non-severe case of clinical mastitis, I would normally recommend no treatment on those. If you want to get a little more advanced on that, you can take a look at the cell count history of those cows because cell count history is a really nice clue as to if they have E. coli or a Klebsiella. And you know, our recent work showed those two pathogens behave very differently, even when the clinical signs are identical. And so that's kind of the, the, the hard part on the gram-negative culture plates is um, if you're herd where you're fairly confident, you don't have, you know, a lot of Klebsiella, that no-treat decision is pretty easy. If you've got some Klebsiella, then I don't know what you do, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being honest because that's that's right where I was in practice as well. So good. This is a really common question. E. coli versus Klebsiella. First, how do you know whether you have E. coli versus Klebsiella? And I, I have been telling people for years that you cannot go based on what the colony looks like on the plate. People really want to believe that they can see that snotty Klebsiella and believe that it's there. And that's just not true. It's a, it's a, it's a coin flip. If you're just using your eyeball and, and trying to figure out what it, what it looks like and determining the difference. 
but I like this because you have some data on this that somatic history can be a good way because that, and that's something that people have that's data that a lot of herds have you can look at the somatic cell count history of the cow and say um, we ha- we tend to have Klebsiella cases in our herd because we've done some diagnostic lab mm-hmm. cultures. We know we have Klebsiellas. So for this individual cow, I may not be able to tell that by looking at her culture plate, but I can look at her somatic cell count history and say, oh, she might be a Klebsiella. Maybe I should do something different with her because we know the spontaneous cure rate for Klebsiellas is not as high as E. coli. Nor is the treatment cure rate. Right, right. The second part that's really interesting. That now, now you have a Klebsiella. What should you do? I don't know. There's a lot of complicating factors on Klebsiella, and there's stuff that's not in that recent gram-negative paper that we didn't publish because we didn't have enough cases. But I'm convinced is correct. And there's a few things there. Par- there was a big parity effect on uh, our outcomes with Klebsiella. You know, somewhat similar to Staph aureus, younger animals. Uh, appeared, and this was not statistically significant. And so now I'm taking off my scientist hat and just putting on my clinician hat. I looked at the data, you know, on our cases, and I'm like, well, I might try treating a first lactation animal that's only had a cell count high for a couple months that has Klebsiella. The other really complicating thing with with the Klebsiella cases in that data set we had is about half the cases were resistant to ceftiafur. They had absolute resistance to ceftiafur and it was a bimodal distribution, which infers that that's an acquired resistance. Okay, so they were either really resistant, really high MICs or really low. And so that's kind of a clue that some of them are resistant. And that's problematic, especially with that class of drugs which we need to be really careful with on farms. And that's why I say I don't really know. I think that if you've got a Klebsiella, you've had some, as Erin said, diagnoses done in a real diagnostic lab, and you see a E. coli case, it's got a long-term high cell count, maybe two or three months high, because E. coli doesn't behave like that normally. And she's a first lactation animal. You might want to try treating her once, you know? And you'd want to use Spectromast on that cow. Absolutely. But don't ever do it again if she doesn't respond, because there's a pretty good clue that you're not going to be successful. I like this because it's super practical, right? We have information that makes sense that we have. We use in, with other pathogens like Staph aureus, like using mm-hmm. parity, you know, clinical mastitis and somatic cell count history to choose which cases we think have the best shot of treatment it makes sense to apply those same rules um, to Klebsiella and make sure that we're practicing good antimicrobial stewardship, particularly because we are gonna choose Ceftiafur, a third generation cephalosporin for this one particular pathogen. Right. How, how do systemic antibiotics play into this? Not so, at all. Not at all, perfect. Okay. Um, <laughs> so oh, I love it. So, you know, this recent review that I did, um, I was trying to actually figure out in this review article, you know, the role of systemic therapy because these papers came from all around the world. And it, there are some drugs available in other countries that have the actual ability to penetrate the mammary gland. We do not have access to any of those drugs in the US. So we have, first of all, no products labeled for systemic administration, which means that any injection given to a cow to treat clinical mastitis has to be done under the direction of a veterinarian with a uh, veterinary client patient relationship. 
Secondly, we have no evidence that any of the drugs that we can give can achieve a, uh, an effective concentration in the udder. And thirdly, we have no clinical trials that show efficacy. So at this point, um, for non-severe cases of clinical mastitis, I absolutely cannot recommend the use of systemic products in the U.S. But I, again, if we can bold it, we'll bold it. But yeah. that's the message. Uh, so keep that in mind. So we've gone through no gross gram negatives, you know, with the caveat of Klebsiella. What's our, our next easiest decision? Uh, Staph aureus. Okay, so we probably don't want to treat Staph aureus. We want to cull those cows. Those are cows we do want to have a career change for. Okay, so those are gone. No treatment on those. With the exception of a cow here and there that you consult with a veterinarian on on the odds, but mostly no. Like your first lactation, early days in milk heifer. That you love for some um, reason. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, there's yeah. there's definitely a, a non-economic component to some of this as well. So yeah, I was on. gonna say like, you know, your child's favorite show cow, like. No, never keep them, never keep them. <laughs> they will transmit to all the other animals. Okay, that is. Tell the parents that. <laughs> I, I I tend to agree with Pam on that, but at the same time, like I'm not going to tell the kid that we're getting rid of his cow. So we'll yeah. we'll try we'll try first, and then then we'll have that discussion later. Okay, so Staph aureus. Then what's next? Okay, so then we get into kind of this group of gram positive pathogens that we used to assume were all coagulase negative staph or non aureus staphs and streptococci. And I think all of us have spent the last kind of 20 years saying that's the group we want to use the antibiotics on. And, and, and that's been my mantra for years. And I, um, we've just completed a trial. The trial wasn't quite as powered as much as we like because we had to stop data collection due to the pandemic. We were actively collecting data last March. But we have a fairly good sized trial. We have 250 some cases, which is a nice size relative to other studies. And what we've learned in that study is that when you use on-farm culture to identify gram-positive pathogens on modern dairy farms, you are coming up with a lot of gram-positive cocci that are not on product labels of intramammary tubes and have no efficacy data. And so, I am growing a bit more cautious on my recommendations. Um, I'm not ready to say we don't treat this group. I am absolutely not ready to say we don't treat this group. What I'm ready to say is some of these pathogens have high rates of spontaneous cure. Some of these pathogens don't cure at all. And we need to do a whole bunch more work in this area. So. I think it's important to recognize that things that grow on on-farm culture that we think are strep, a lot of them aren't. And while I think if you wanna err on the side of caution, you would treat that group probably for minimal duration, but I'd say um, stay tuned. You, you already said it because I was already ready to ask you, you know, am I going to stop treating these gram positive pathogens that I that I identified because of the wide distribution and some of the, the data from your study. But 
I think it's it's comforting to me to know that we are still treating something. Uh, and I think that's the hardest thing to get across to the farmer is that not treating also sometimes the workers on the farm, you know, getting buy-in from everybody that we're going to see abnormal milk, we're going to do all these things and not treat. That's uh, that's a that's a tough buy-in sometimes. I mean, what's the next step, Pam? Like, how are we going to figure out that this seems like a huge, like a Pandora's box here that we're opening of how are we going to differentiate all these things? How are we going to do it quickly enough for it to matter? All, all these different things. How, how is that all going to play out? Well, let me back up and just give a little description of what we did with these gram positives. So we had a non-treated control group, which is really unusual. Um, and we paid farmers for milk discard uh, or for the potential that the animals, we paid them an honorarium for those cows. And then we had two three-day treatments, okay? One was uh, polymast, one was three days of spectromast, and one was eight days of spectromast. And so the first thing I'd say is, and we saw no difference in most of our important clinical outcomes amongst those groups, okay? And this is the first trial that has been done in that area. I never make broad ranging recommendations based on a single trial, although we had four farms. Um, in that trial and the data is pretty solid. But what I think we can say definitively today is you don't need long duration therapy. Okay, so that's the easiest thing I think to implement right now. You can go with a short duration therapy of any of the approved intramammary products right now for your treatment of gram positives. If you have a history of a cow, again, I would use the same principles we've used for the groups of the gram negatives and the no gross. If you've got a history of a cow that's a younger cow that's got a fairly low cell count prior to the case, and you want to um, experiment with no treatment of gram positives, experiment with your young cows who are otherwise healthy and in positive energy balance. I would not recommend going to no treatment with older cows, uh, cows with a history of a long-term high cell count, cows maybe um, in early lactation. I think the average days in milk in our clinical cases was pretty much 150 or 159 days or something. So we're looking at mid-lactation cows on average in the, that population we enrolled. And I think that's important too. But I would say definitively, you don't need um, broad spectrum drugs, you don't need eight days. So let's take baby steps toward, you know, improving our antimicrobial stewardship. So I was kind of thinking about what my, what, what I would say to a vet or a producer after they heard about this gram positive study yeah. that you did. And I came up with two, your, your takeaway is good. I like it. I came up with one, go back to our case selection and think mm -hmm. about looking at case history don't treat cows that are have chronic mastitis, mm -hmm. chronically high cell counts, and or otherwise crummy cows. The other part is basically, even with the group of organisms that we thought we needed to treat to make a difference, we're probably overall not making as big of a difference as we think we are. Yeah. Therefore, investing a lot of energy and money into treatment decisions is probably uh, a bit of a waste of effort. We should transfer some of that to prevention because we know that yeah. prevention is way more effective. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Erin. And I, I mean, you know, one thing I often start talks with to producer talks is 
treatment, the cost of treatment is always an economic loss. All your treatment dollars are economic loss. You're just trying to design a treatment that will lose you the least amount of money. Your dollars you spend on prevention are investments. They're not losses. They will translate into more income. So, you know, I think that's a really important concept to understand, an investment versus a cost. And so when you're looking at your treatment strategies for gram positives, A, I think it's really important to do some culturing in a real diagnostic lab, especially a lab that has MALDI, so that you can um, know what's out there. There are farms that you can go to that do have a lot of streps. And if you know that, I would recommend continuing to treat uh, those gram positives. But what we learned in this study, and we're still delving into that, this is part of Quinn Collar's PhD dissertation, is that on the four farms we went to, uh, we had a lot of stuff that's not on product labels that grows on gram positive media. And there are no clinical trials for those bacteria. So Pam, I want to look a little bit in the future because we we're talking about culture a lot and mm -hmm. we're seeing sequencing becoming more and more and more popular and less and less expensive. Where does that start to come in, especially when we're talking about gram positives and trying to differentiate between them? You know, we've sequenced uh, we, uh, actually a fair number of organisms just to play around with. And um, we'll, we're doing more of that coming up. But um, sequencing is really confusing. You know, I think we're a long ways off. I mean, what you get with sequences is you see these base pairs. So, you know, you see places where the little DNA pieces have moved around and you sit there and think, well, does that matter or not? It's just like these COVID variations. You know, you've got the best scientists in the world looking at these different strains. And they're like, well, I'm, we're not really sure what that means. Okay, um, that's kind of where we're at with a lot of these sequencing decisions on dairy farms. So I think we're a long ways off from, from using that data. I had a question and now it's gone. Oh, Bradley, I'm trying to channel my inner Bradley. Okay, so <laughs> Bradley uh, loves organic farming and runs both a conventional and an organic farm side by side. So you, you've repeatedly said not antibiotics, but antimicrobials when you're talking about, about infusions and the, does this all apply to some of our organic options as well when we're talking about tubes on the organic side? So one of kind of the motivating factor for me in doing some of these clinical trials was at one point, this is probably 10 years ago, I had two big studies going on. One study was the Leonio Vieira study where we went to 52 large Wisconsin herds and we just figured out what they were using to treat mastitis and what some of the outcomes were. And at the same exact time I had that going on, I had a study going on where we enrolled 200 organic farms in 100 matched herd size conventional farms and collected a ton of information on disease and treatments and such. And so I had little farms, organic farms and big conventional farms are getting data at the same time. And I'm looking at kind of outcomes and stuff and I'm not seeing a lot of difference. And I'm like, we really have to look at this. But I wanna really stress that the, there is zero evidence 
absolutely zero evidence that any of the botanical therapies, any of the herbs, any of the tubes that are sold uh, and marketed on organic farms, there is zero evidence of efficacy, absolutely zero. And um, beyond the evidence of efficacy, I'll say we collected data on hundreds of farms. And what we learned is there was huge variability in um, what people used and people would change what they use. And so, you know, I think farmers are really smart and clever. And if there was a therapy in the organic world that was absolutely efficacious without any studies by people in the university, they would figure it out and they would all use the same thing, but they don't do that. So I think there's no like practical in the field evidence that there's an overridingly efficacious organic therapy. And I think there's no scientific evidence and I have absolutely no compunction saying that organic dairy farmers have no available treatments for mastitis. That said, the organic farmers being as clever as they are, focus a lot on prevention and they do a lot of strategies like drying off quarters and culling cows and using nurse cows that allow them to market high quality milk. I know Bradley might be a little devastated that, that you're so emphatic that there isn't an option for treatment, but we'll, we'll set him straight when he gets back. So he talks about organics. Can I ask a question, Joe? I guess so. Okay, so I think that we have covered a lot of very practical territory for our veterinarians and producers who are listening. I want to ask one more. You've given vets a lot of great advice about how to set up their treatment protocols on dairies. What should veterinarians be monitoring to gauge treatment success on a dairy? First of all, they should be monitoring compliance with the protocols that they're you know, asking them to follow. So that's really an important thing. Second, if they are doing on-farm culturing, they should be engaged in that and monitoring actually um, a couple of key uh, quality control things like, Erin, you mentioned earlier, the percentage of culture negative plates. That's a really important QC factor. Okay, so you gotta see if, if, if they're doing culture-based therapy, are they doing it right? If they're given protocols to follow, are they doing that right? So I think that's fundamentally the most important things is are the protocols being followed? If the protocols are being followed, then I think you want to look at the percent of animals who have cell counts that return to normal um, or healthy levels by about six weeks. I think you want to look at recurrence and not all of those factors, again, not 100% correlation or association with treatment efficacy, but really important to understand the system that you're treating in. I think you do want to have some idea of the number of days of milk discard because that's a huge indicator of compliance with the protocol. But I think that's about all you can monitor. You know, you can look at culling rates, but culling rates are driven by so many other factors. I mean, culling rates are often uh, a pile-on effect, right? She's not pregnant. She gets mastitis. She's lame. She's got to go. Do you have benchmarks for for the for recurrence and percent yeah. return yeah. to milk? So for recurrence, again, it's going to be highly pathogen dependent. If you've got no growth, you know, you're going to have about a five to 10% recurrence rate. If you've got a huge rate of exposure, say a manure solids herd, you could be up to a 40% recurrence rate. So I, 
The data we have, which we've collected on a bunch of herds, shows an average recurrence rate is about 20%, and that's after 14 days. You'd want about you know, 85, 90% of those cows to be back in the milking herd or eligible to be back in the milking herd um, by the end of the, their milk, milk withholding period, somewhere around day seven to eight. Cell count, you know, you've got to know your pathogen type, but you'd probably want, um, I'd have to look at that, but you know, 70, 75% of those cows to be headed toward, <laughs> you know, a healthy level. So I think, you know, compliance is always something we struggle with and, and trying to, to do that from the veterinary side, but then also if you are a farmer with employees doing that on that end as well, making sure that on your end, the, the protocol is being followed that you've laid out for employees to follow because it, it drifts, whether it's miscommunication mm -hmm. or, or something else going on. And then I think looking at these same things, you know, where we're, whether we're looking at percent of somatic cell normalizing or returning to uh, previous levels, recurrence rates, days of milk discard, any of those things can also point to uh, some of those other things we talked about on the farm that that necessarily aren't, you know, maybe the protocol is being followed to perfection, but there's something else that's kind of adding into that complexity, um, whether it's Klebsiella or some of these other bugs that we've talked about already. So I think even just monitoring those to make sure that you're, you know, you have your farmers back and you're watching out for them as well. Last call for questions. Emily, any last fangirl moments? <laughs> I know, you know, I've been kind of quiet this episode. I'm just very starstruck. <laughs> good deal Aaron anything that you need nope I got all the good stuff that was really fun Pam thank you yeah it was fun really enjoyed this oh good I I would welcome you to come back anytime Aaron you know we'll have to talk a little more but Pam you're welcome to come back anytime <laughs> Aaron you're welcome to come back anytime too uh, this is the Joe show Emily is I don't the boss, know so. You've got to correct that University of Minnesota Madison, though. I don't, I don't know where that came from. That was just, you know, maybe it was just like this hope that you'd come to Minnesota instead. I don't know. Come to us. Yeah. I mean, we would love to be able to claim Pam. That Absolutely. All right. With that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks again to, to Pam and Aaron for being here. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed this episode. If you have questions, comments, scathing rebuttals, which there might be after today to anything we said, please send them to the boozeroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. If you want more information about anything we else we've talked about related to milk quality today, definitely jump on YouTube and search for Pam's YouTube channel. UW Milk Quality. If you're interested in mastitis treatment, we are going to be offering a mastitis treatment short course as part of our Minnesota Dairy Health Conference webinar series in the spring and summer. And you can find more information about that at dairyhealthconference.umn.edu. Pam, anything else you want to plug? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Top Milk. At Top Milk. I will do that right now for the Moose Room because we're on Twitter as well. Thank you for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. We'll probably have these two back in the future. I don't think we can avoid it at this point. Awesome. True. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.